That's a lot said right here. And uh, I, I have a few things to to back up with. Getting back into Deuteronomy 8, let's go down. Uh, let's for a moment flash back up. We've gotten down into uh, verse 9, uh, but I'd like to go back up to verse 8 for a little bit here. Uh, I located some backup material I had that I want to present to you a little bit. Uh, this part where it says, For the eternal your God brings you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and depths that spring out of valleys and hills. And I did go through and name uh, a little bit about the water sources in the Middle East and that Israel over there. And then spent, I guess, quite a little time because, and I didn't even begin to cover the water sources in this country. Uh, there's water, well, we just have more water than you know what to do with if we use it properly, and we haven't been lately, but nonetheless, this land was blessed with all kinds of water. You don't have to get far east of the Rocky Mountains before it just turns green everywhere. And uh, and even on the west coast uh, and through the Rockies, there's a great deal of water and, and big rivers and so on and so forth and springs and fountains and, and all that. Uh, but I'll read a, a couple of excerpts here from other sources because what we're really doing is trying to see if that land fits what the Bible says. This isn't rocket science, really. <laughs> this is just comparing what the book says with what the reality is. Um, this is from an article called The Dark Side of Israel. It came out of uh, www.bilderberg.org slash crusade slash Israel. It said, Land is not the only target of living. They were describing some of the difficulties uh, geopolitically in the country. It said, Israel does not have enough water to support the large numbers of immigrants it needs to outpace the fecund Arab population. To maintain the stream of immigrants, the Zionist lobby induced the U.S. Congress to endorse stricter immigration laws to make it more difficult for Jews from the Soviet bloc to enter the United States. Unable to come to their first destination, most immigrants end up in Israel, where the water supply falls short of supporting the artificially increased population. And we're only talking uh, between 8 and 10 million uh, Arabs, Jews, everybody there. As a result, the Israelis raid the aquifer in the occupied territories to meet their needs. When Palestinians' wells go dry, a negative response or indifferent silence meets a request for permits to dig deeper wells. Meanwhile, the illegal settlers, the Jews at all, that is, get all the water they want from the dropping aquifer while they live on land that has been Ill illegally seized. Um, there is no question that Israel's policies regarding land ownership and water rights are not simply biased against Palestinians, but violent and illegal, and above all, contrary, and above all, contrary to the fundamental concept of private property. So they do have water needs over there. Here's another quote. This is from uh, the CIA website, United States CIA. Uh, comment under environment. And here are some of the current issues. Limited arable land. Very little farmland, or land that can be farmed, put it that way. So even if you have water, you have to have land that can be irrigated and made productive, and they have very little of that. Does that sound like what we read in Deuteronomy? Uh, limited arable land, uh, arable land and natural freshwater resources pose serious constraints. They don't just have a little bit of a water shortage. They have serious constraints. Desertification, air pollution from industrial and vehicle emissions, groundwater pollution, uh, and chemical fertilizers and pesticides and so on. 
so they have very little water. Now, you might say, and the argument has been brought up by people over the years about the Holy Land. Now, this is from uh, the New Bible Atlas, uh, page 14, under the lands, the Holy Land, under climate. Because they just say, well, it used to be different. There used to be lots of water here when Israel was here, uh, but it's changed since then. All right, let's see what they say about that. It is often asked whether the climate of the Bible lands has changed since biblical times. Now, why is the question ever asked? Because if you read the Bible story, God said he would take them into a very verdant, productive land where they would need nothing. And you look at what's there today and you think, that doesn't fit, this doesn't work. So people would begin to say, well, what happened? Why is it this way? Okay. That question is asked. Here is the answer. Accepting that fluctuations can and do occur, there is no, that's in, oh, no, not a little or maybe or some, there is no archaeological evidence for significant change. Then they give us an example. Near the Gulf of Aqaba, excavated Roman gutters still fit the springs for which they were constructed. It is therefore necessary to seek other reasons why a land notable for milk and honey and splendid fruit crops, quoting number 1327, had become by the early 20th century a barren and treeless land of little or no agricultural value. Archaeology tells them that the springs, small springs that are down near the Gulf of Aqaba still fit the channels that were built to contain them thousands of years ago. Uh, if there had been a lot of water back then, those springs would have been bigger and the, uh, the, uh, uh, the gutters would have to have been much larger, obviously. So I think they're drawing a correct conclusion there. Did we, did we read Numbers 13, uh, 27? I'll just flip back there for a moment. Um, well, this is the report. Maybe while we're here, we'll just go ahead and pick up a little bit more of it because it gives us a bigger picture. I was going to come here anyway. Uh, this is where the spies went in to spy out the land before going in with Joshua and what they would see. And verse 20, And what the land is, whether it be fat or lean, whether they be, there be wood therein for building, for fires, for the various things people use wood for, or not. And be you of good courage, and bring of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes, so in the springtime. And they searched the land, and ascended by the south, and came to Hebron. Uh, verse 20, they came to the brook Eshcol, and cut down from thence a branch with one cluster of grapes, and took it between two upon a staff. Now, most grapes I've had anything to do with, I could easily pick up with a couple fingers, you know, a whole cluster. But here it took a rod over the shoulder of two men to carry a cluster of grapes. And they bore it between two on a staff, and they brought of the pomegranates and the figs. Uh, it was called the Brook Eshkol, meaning valley. Uh, because of the cluster of grapes which the children of Israel cut down from there. And they returned after 40 days. So they came back, verse 27, and they told him and said, We came into the land where you sent us, and surely it flows with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. Grapes, milk, honey. Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land, and then they began to discuss their fears. But it was a very productive land. Uh, I had a quote from someone just yesterday. Uh, I wish I had the reference in front of me, but 
there's a fellow uh, who went over several years ago, actually, into the Holy Land, and uh, Esposito is his name. Uh, I know his brother, uh, and he has been over there checking things out. And he gave a sermon. Uh, I don't. I have the tape somewhere, I believe, on, of that one. And uh, he was saying that all the Palestinians that are there essentially were people that the rest of the Arabs did not like. And they ran them out of their areas to a land that nobody else really wanted. And that's where the Palestinian presence that is there today came from, of rabble Arabs or uh, remnant Arabs or whatever who were unliked by their own people. And they were the ones there. I'll, we'll get into the subject a little more a little later on, but from an agricultural standpoint and a productivity standpoint, uh, the Jews were not even there until the British started bringing them around in around 1948. So it was Arab land. And I think if you get into the history of it, uh, you won't find that the Jews or Israel really have a claim on that land. When the Arabs say, this is our land, uh, it's very likely that is the land that God gave Ishmael, that land and a lot of that area around it, uh, is a permanent thing, uh, at least for through, through history. Now, they may have some land back over here at some point, who knows, uh, when this land again is properly divided. But it's a land known for milk, honey, and splendid fruit crops. Well, if that's the case, why did just a few Arabs go there when they were forced to? Uh, why did the Jews gather there just because the British said, this is the place we want you to be? Historically, it is not a productive land, and they have found no evidence that it ever was. And that has been a big point a desire to prove that that was a productive land. Because all the religionists read what God said about the promised land, and they're trying to make that fit. And they cannot do it. It just doesn't work. So they do have a water problem. Let's see, I think I had... Uh, here's another comment about trees. Few districts, the same book, uh, Bible Atlas, uh, few districts have ever had dense forests. But over 20 types of tree are mentioned in the Bible, and remnant woodlands have been preserved on Mount Hermon and in Lebanon, which has all been noted, always been noted for its cedars. Small forests of oak and pine still exist. Um, somewhere here, let's see. Oh, they changed northern Gilead and southern Galilee into sheep pastures. If there were forests there, they took them down. In other words, while there is no substantial evidence of climactic change in the Holy Land, the vegetational change being largely man-made, has been widespread. In other words, there wasn't much there, and the trees that are there have been introduced more recently by man. It's not something that was originally there. Uh, I think that's all I want from there. I have another quote here on water or something like that. Let's get let's get a couple here on uh, milk and honey. Somebody looked up some tables. Um, here we go. Largest honey producers in the world. China, Turkey, Argentina, the United States. The USA is number four in the world for producing honey. I don't know what it is on milk. I didn't look that up, but it's very high on that as well. 
the tremendous dairies all the way across this country, Wisconsin, uh, some of the northern states up there are really known for it, but there are incredible dairies in Southern California just go on one after another, after another, after another, and they're all over the country. Uh, ironically, the land of Israel over there isn't on the list. In fact, it's way, 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 way down toward the bottom of the list. They didn't make a list that long so that it could include Israel. Uh, but the U.S. is number four. We're also the number eight uh, country in exporting honey. So this is a land of great dairies, great milk production, and great honey production. So that land over there simply does not fit numbers as we just read it, 1327, was it? Now, let's go on back to Deuteronomy 8. See if there was something else here I wanted to include at that particular place. No, I don't think so. Uh, and read on down. We have lots of water here. They have almost none there. It's a serious problem. And then it talks about the agricultural production. We covered that yesterday. This land is probably the most blessed land agriculturally on the face of the earth by far, with variety as well as volume of agricultural produ uh, produ production. Now, uh, let's see. A land where you shall eat bread without scarceness, wouldn't be scarce at all. There'd be plenty of it. And there is plenty of wheat produced in this country to make all the bread that Americans can possibly eat. And we export millions of tons of various grains. Um, now, let's, let's go. You shall not lack anything in it. Focus on that just a moment. This land has to have everything you could need based on this scripture, this land that is the promised land. Whether it's that one over there or whether it is possible that this is the original promised land. Can you think of anything in terms of a natural resource that we don't have? I think it's easier to do it that way than to start listing the things we do have. I don't see many hands going up. One? For years we were told that South Africa and Russia were the main supply for the rare metals that are used. I thought you'd bring that up. The rare metals, there are lots of them in Utah alone, right on top of the ground. They have not been mined, and even with gold and silver mining now, the U.S. government has made it so difficult the little guy can almost not even mine, and some of the big companies are going overseas because of onerous uh, environmental and tax problems that, that they've laid upon miners. So the move to destroy this country continues unabated. And it's not that those things are not here. It's that they will not let us use them. Like oil, we import oil, but we do not need to. As I said yesterday, we have oil here enough to take care of us for hundreds of years at full production. Uh, it's there in reserves. I've watched them myself, dig oil wells by the thousands in Texas and other places, and then cap them. Uh, there, there's plenty of oil. So there is nothing that this country lacks. Uh, we have it all here if we just wish to use it. Uh, well, one of the things you really need to have a, a modern economy, 
is mineral resources, like you mentioned, the rare earth minerals. Uh, those haven't even become important until just recently, but we do have them here. Uh, but let's read on down. A land whose stones are iron, and out of whose hills you may dig brass. To build a powerful nation, you have to have the metals. Now, I can show you quotes I, uh, about, well, I, I've got one right here. Here is a list. you got your pencil ready and, and a tablet full of paper. Here's a list of the natural resources in the land of Israel over there. Timber. And we already read there's very, very little of that. I've driven all over that country, north, south, east, and west. I found a few scrub oaks on Mount Carmel. Uh, Mount Hermon is virtually void of timber. Uh, they have a few little groves in the Golan Heights. Uh, they have very, very little. We already read that in the Bible Atlas, that they'd planted some trees, but they don't have much. they got a few cedars up in Lebanon. So they list timber as a natural resource, but it ain't Oregon, <laughs> uh, to use the vernacular. It isn't the United States with our hundreds of thousands of square miles of timber. Well, they have very, very little of that. Potash. A few chemicals that they get out of the Dead Sea. Uh, some natural gas, not a great deal of that. Phosphate rock. Magnesium bromide. Clays. And here's the big one. Hold your breath. Sand. Now, that's a comprehensive list of their natural resources. There is absolutely no iron in the country. There is absolutely no gold and silver in the country. There is one, I, well, I left out one, I'll put it last. There is one little copper mine down near the Gulf of Aqaba, and that's the only copper known of in the country. So, uh, one little copper mine does not constitute all the natural resources you will need. And the rest of this is just stuff, chemicals in the Dead Sea. Now contrast this country. We have incredible iron deposits in the Masabi Range up in Minnesota. Uh, just over this hill is a place called Iron Mountain. It's in Iron County, Utah. That's, that's how this country, this county got its name. If you go to the Chamber of Commerce right here in Cedar City, they have boulders there, oh, four, five, six, eight feet wide that are, uh, iron ore. I've gone up on Iron Mountain and I've picked up samples of the ore. It's, well, it's a mountain of iron. And what you see sticking up, and they're mining it. The Mormons mined it earlier. That's why it's called Iron County. And they're mining it to this day. Uh, we have all the iron that was needed to build the infrastructure of the greatest nation on the face of the earth. And we still have enormous iron deposits left that have not been touched. There's a whole... Right here, a whole mountain range that is iron. This land right around here that we are camped on and on the other side of this ridge has so much iron underground that pilots of commercial airlines have said there when they fly over this area, their instruments go bananas. We have gold and silver. Let's read on down a little bit. It says, A land whose stones are iron, and out of whose hills you may dig brass. Now, people say, well, if, if you look at the statistics, it says, well, Israel produces iron and steel products. But you have to realize that all the ore is either brought in raw or imported, having already been somewhat refined or reduced. Yeah, they do make some 
steel products there, but not from land or from iron out of whom they are from which. Let me start over. They didn't dig it out of their own hills, is what I was trying to say. And we can dig copper. We can dig all the ores needed for a modern society out of mines in this country. One of the biggest copper mines in the world is right up here by Salt Lake City. Uh, there's another huge one out by Elko, Nevada that I've driven by many times. Uh, so there's, there's copper. Let's read on down. And when you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the eternal your God for the good land which he has given you. So it is a good land. When I went to the Middle East, I said, if this is the promised land, count me out. There wasn't anything over there that looked good or that looked productive or looked like it's something where I would want to be. Then he says, beware not to forget God and his commandments, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built goodly houses and dwelt therein. And boy, have we built goodly houses, even recently with our McMansions. And when your herds and your flocks multiply, would you like to have some statistics on the amount of uh, domestic animals, cattle, sheep, and goats that this country produces as compared to over there? Uh, I've been there. I've seen a few little shepherds running around in some of the villages with their little flock of 12 to 15 goats. Uh, on some of the better irrigated ground, they have some very, very small uh, herds of animals. Over here, we produce, I, I don't even have the statistics, but, you know, look at the ranch land and all the animals produced, hogs, sheep, goats, cows, on and on it goes. It's, we're very prolific with it. I don't think we even need the statistics on that. They have multiplied, but they haven't over there. And your silver and your gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied. They have no gold and no silver, no precious gemstones, none of those things. We have all kinds of precious stone mines all over this country. I know people, I know somebody that owns a sapphire mine up in Montana. Uh, there's a, an agate mine right up here. There's a guy found a big um, emerald mine in his backyard in uh, North Carolina, I think it was, north or south, North Carolina, I think it was. We have all that stuff here. We think of South Africa or or places in the east on those things, but we have them here as well, as much as we could possibly need. Um, bear this in mind, that when the river... I'll refer you back to uh, the sermons John Reitenbaugh did on the, the trees in the garden, and uh, think of his name, the guy that died that... Um, Jim Rector uh, did also uh, some sermons in a paper on the Garden of Eden in Jerusalem and so on, and I think and I did some as well. But I think it is fairly easy to prove without going back to those. I'll refer you to them and to my sermons from which I quoted from those two. That would be in our scriptural ind uh, sermon index if you don't want to go to those or can't find them, but they they can be found. I think uh, ample proof was shown that uh, the Garden of Eden was at Jerusalem uh, and Zion uh, in the area that was central to God's creation and will be forever the headquarters of the kingdom of God. Now, here in Genesis 2, it says a river, verse 10, went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it was parted and came into four heads. The name of the first is Pison, that is, it which compasses the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. 
So, the river that came out of the Garden of Eden, one of its heads, or one of the, one of the rivers that came out, this is a little different description, I think, than what we normally consider. If you have a river starting up, it has tributaries that come into it as it goes downhill, or down out of the mountains. In this case, it came out of the garden, apparently in one river, and then split into four. Instead of merging together, they split. Somewhere within the range of those rivers, and it doesn't say how long they were, but within the range of the river that came out of Jerusalem, there was gold. Was that 10 miles? Was it 50 miles? You know, I don't think it was 2,000 miles. But somewhere not too far from the Garden of Eden then, there was a good source of gold. And there's the vellum and the onyx, so precious or semi-precious stones, also there, none of which you find in the nation of Israel and the Middle East, or anywhere near its borders for that matter. Um, the name of the second river is Gihon, the same as if it encompasses the whole land of Ethiopia. Now, we think of Ethiopia as a country over there, but if this were the first cradle of civilization over here, then uh, all the peoples of the earth, all the races, were here originally. They had been killed in the flood, went out on the plain of Mesopotamia, but came back here. So this was the original place. Uh, so there was an Ethiopia here. The name of the third river is Hydekel, which goes toward the east of Assyria, and the fourth river is Euphrates. But the point I wanted to make is that the central source of this was Jerusalem. Then the things that are mentioned here have to be within at least a reasonable range of that. Uh, there are no evidences of any rivers over there that might could have come out of there. I think it is interesting up here in Zion, though, that you have several rivers that have their headwaters right in the Zion area. Primarily the Severe River, which goes north from Zion, the East Fork of uh, the Virgin River, which is back-to-back -back with the Severe River where they headwater at a pass. Uh, you have uh, the North Fork of the Virgin coming out of Cascade Falls up here. And then you have Ash Creek crossing uh, down here out of below the Kolob Fingers. Now, they're not large rivers to this day, um, but at least there's rivers coming out of it. Uh, and they don't have that over there at all. Kind of an interesting observation there as well. Now, Nobody knows, according to the commentaries, where the land of Ophir was. It said they had gold in Ophir, First Chronicles 29. I looked this up in the commentaries and say, well, nobody knows where that is. And I'm not claiming that I do either. <laughs> but uh, there's gold there, and it's mentioned here. Um, 29.4. Uh, let's start in three. Moreover, because I have set my affection to the house of my God, I have my, of my own proper good, of gold and silver, which I have given to the house of my God, over and above all that I have prepared for the holy house, even three thousand talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir. A talent is what? About 120 pounds, I think. Three thousand of those. 7,000 talents of refined silver to overlay the walls of the house, the gold for things of gold and the silver for things of silver, and for all manner of work to be made by the hands of the skilled craftsmen. Um, so, lots of gold and lots of silver. We know David and Solomon had it. Uh, there is a reference. I don't think I read that one, but uh, we may run across it yet, which says that Abraham had lots of gold and silver, very rich with gold and silver. So the land that Abraham went to 
must have produced gold and silver because he left his father's house in Mesopotamia, probably the land of Haran or Iran, and went looking for a city. And he became very wealthy there. So the land must have the precious metals as well. Uh, precious metals have been used as currency, and the major currency of ancient Israel was gold and silver. Christ was betrayed later with silver. So, where is it over there? If you're going to find the promised land, you're going to have to find a place that has all these things. I'm using America as the example because it's either the leader or among the leaders of almost all these things that we're bringing up. And not only that, but I'm biased and I think that this is the promised land. But we'll see a lot more proof on that as we go along. Meanwhile, uh, we have to see if that over there fits. And so far, I've found nothing that fits over there. And we've got a lot more stuff to cover. Oh, here, here it is, Genesis 13, 2. About Abraham. Flip back there right quick. Abraham went up out of Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the south. And Abram was very rich in cattle, in silver, and in gold. Now, if he was very rich in cattle, and that's the desert land over there, uh, what did they eat? Over here, you could be very rich in cattle, and they'd have plenty to eat. Uh, Deuteronomy 8, 13, oh, I, we've already been there. Let's see, Joshua 6, 19. I want to look at some of these uh, things in Scripture to show us that we need to be expecting certain things when we find the promised land. So this is, they entered into the promised land. Uh, this is in the context of the very first conquest, Jericho, where the walls fell down. Uh, verse 18, and you in any wise, he's, he's quoting, telling them what to do when they take the city. Keep yourselves from the accursed thing, lest you make yourselves accursed when you take of the accursed thing, and make the camp of Israel accursed and trouble it. But all the silver and gold, vessels of brass and iron are consecrated to the eternal, they shall come into the treasury of the eternal. So when they went into the promised land, having wandered for 40 years, and I don't think they were carrying gold and silver on their backs, uh, you know, they didn't have the capacity to do that. They had brought it out of Egypt, yes, but where had it gone? And had they had to buy from people where they went or whatever, I don't know. But that's neither here nor there. What they may still have had when coming from Mitzrayim, uh, they had. But this is pointing out that there was silver and gold, brass and iron in the promised land. There is almost none of that over there. No iron and very little copper from which you can make brass. Over here, there's gold and silver everywhere, uh, almost. We've had tremendous gold rushes in California, Alaska. They mine gold all over the Rocky Mountains, silver. One of the biggest silver mines in the world right over here in St. George. I don't know whether most of you know that or not, but it's called Silver Reef. They took enormous amounts of silver out of there until World War II, and because of the need for material and manpower, they abandoned those silver mines uh, to fight the war. And since the war, uh, well, during the war and right after, that is all filled with water. And there are chemicals in there that are dangerous, and as a result, they've not picked up the mining. I, I know personally some people who tried to get it restarted again just recently. And uh, there was so much governmental involvement and so on that it was impossible, so we backed off of it. But there is still a huge silver deposit right here at the base of Pine Mountain. Right there it leads. 
There's still there's a museum right there about all the silver mining that went on. The shafts are still there. I've seen coins minted from it. Uh, so right here, there's lots of silver. There's lots of gold right here. Well, where did those people in Jericho get this stuff? If the promised land was there and they were in it, where did this stuff come from? If it were over here, there would have been no problem. Now, we'll get into archaeology a little later. But they say the Iron Age did not begin until 1000 B.C., uh, David and Solomon. And yet here we have Abraham with iron, uh, with uh, gold and silver, and we have iron and brass when they first went into the land. Where did it come from? That was long before David and Solomon were born. And they found no evidence whatsoever of David or Solomon or any of the things that the Bible says they built. Now, if you go up into Mesopotamia and Iran and some of those places where they talk about the uh, Babylonian and the uh, other empires that were there, Persians, Medes and Persians, they dig up cities that were there. But you go down into the Middle East, into Israel, and you can find no evidence of it. And yet, Solomon built some of the finest buildings and the huge uh, complexes of buildings that the world has ever known. And no evidence whatsoever. The only thing they found that could even begin to tie King David to it is one little scrap that says House of David on there. You know how many Davids there have been in the world? Not just King David of Israel? How do you know that that's King David? That's the only thing with anything that has a name even close uh, that they found. That's more in the archaeological section, but since we're talking about iron and so on, obviously the Iron Age was there uh, long before. David and Solomon weren't born for a long time after they came into the land and settled it. So what, why do we have iron and brass there? Well, it was here all along. I can show you references. They had iron before the flood. Where, where do all these people come up with these so-called ages, Bronze Age and the Iron Age and so on? It's, it's actually kind of ridiculous. And the Bible says that it was there long before. Anyway, let's not get too far uh, afield there. Uh, 22.8 of Joshua. And he spoke to them, saying, Return with much riches under your tents, and with very much cattle, with silver, with gold, with brass, and with iron. And with very much raiment, divide the spoil of your enemies with your brethren. This is in the promised land again, under the uh, rule of Joshua, as they were taking the land. So it wasn't just Jericho, but other places, these things are mentioned. Very verdant land, much cattle, and much natural resource. First uh, Kings ten, and here I want uh, about verse twenty-seven, talking about the things that Solomon had gathered up, and the king made silver, verse twenty-seven, to be in Jerusalem as stones, like rocks on the ground. It was so common, and cedars made he to be as the sycamore trees that are in the vale for abundance. There's been no climate change over there. Where are these huge forests? Let's see, that's, uh, well, that's enough of that, that one, just to, to give an overview. Uh, 
Yeah, it says he imported some from the Queen of Sheba and so on, but where was she? Sheba means Queen of Seven. And I've seen artifacts from and maps that have been found on petroglyphs here in this country. Maybe we'll get to those a little later. I mean, here in this this, this region of this country, which show city show seven cities. And I've seen evidence of the seven cities of Cibola right here in Utah. So the Queen of Sheba was the Queen of Seven Cities right here. And she may have brought gold and silver that was mined here. Even Steve Collins, uh, in his book, in Barry Fell and, and other sources, uh, show or say that Solomon sh sent ships over here to mine iron and to mine precious metals. Now, did he send from here, or is the, re is the direction reversed a bit? <laughs> Maybe Solomon was here and was able to uh, bring these precious metals from this continent instead of coming from the Middle East to this continent to get them. Now, he did have ships going around the world. It says it took three years for his trading ships to go around the world, and that's about what Sir Francis Drake took the, the British a sailor when he went around the world, and that's what it takes in a, a sailing ship doing trading. Land has to have had these before Solomon ever began to import, long before he was ever born. already there. Now what about those people? Archaeologists will tell you that those people were just not even yet having iron and brass until Solomon's day. In other words, they would have us to believe that the peoples that inhabited the promised land were basically savages. That's the way the Philistines and the various ones are depicted in the movies. And that's the way archaeology would tell you what they are. I don't believe that. I believe that the land of promise had all of these minerals in it. And when they took the cities, those peoples had refined gold and silver and brass and iron from the area they were in. And they were essentially the Hamitic tribes of Genesis 10. Uh, and Israel had been in captivity in their land, Mitzrium, and that Egypt was filled with iron and gold and iron chariots and so on and so forth. So to depict those people as just tribal wanderers or something that were in Israel's way is a misnomer by far. They were very, very advanced. We'll get to it a little bit later, but they're uncovering enormous cities under the jungles in South America and in Central America, and there is much evidence of the peoples of Ham having been there, maybe died off or chased to Africa or whatever, but having been in those areas and built tremendous public works and had much treasure as well. There just isn't any of that in the Middle East. Maybe I'm taking quite a bit of time on this, but maybe it's, maybe it's important that we see uh, what was. Job 28. I'll just take a little bit more here. Job 28. Uh, verse 1, just breaking into what's going on with Job without that story, but to, to see something here. Surely there is a vein for the silver and a place for gold where they refine it. Iron is taken out of the earth, and brass is molten out of the stone. He sets an end to darkness and searches out all the perfection, the stones of darkness and the shadow of death. 
the flood breaks out from the inhabitant. Even the waters forgotten of the foot, they are dried up, they are gone away from men. As for the earth, out of it comes bread, and under it is turned up as it were fire. So you have agricultural land with a lot of volcanic action under it. There's an awful lot of that in this country. Uh, it's like your your bread is baked from the fire from beneath. In other words, there's lots of fire underneath and there's lots of bread to be made. If you look outside this tent right now, you see lava rock is all you see uh, in terms of the, the type of rock here. And it's all over the ring of fire and all up and down the west coast and even in the east coast of America. The stones of it are the place of sapphires, so precious stones. I already said, I know people that mine sapphires here. And it has dust of gold. Interesting. Uh, there is much gold in this country in hard rock mining, but there's a lot of placer mining. That was what the California gold rush was, panning it out of the rivers. That's what the Alaska gold rush was, panning it out of the rivers and, and the waterways. So it's in the dust. And there's none over there, again. Where was Job? He was one of God's people. Was he in the promised land? I suspect that he was. Let's see. Well, that's probably enough of those. Let's see. Well, let's see. Isaiah 122, if you want to jot it down. The silver has become dross. He's talking to Israel. Now, were they then mining in Israel? Where the silver had become dross? The, uh, some of the uh, ore they were using, maybe not what it should be or it had lost its value in some way, uh, but it wasn't a value to them in that case. Isaiah 2, verse 7, I will turn to that. Maybe one reference would be enough for us to see, well, there was some silver, there was some gold, there was some iron, but I think it means a lot to see how often it is mentioned because it shows a great deal. Here he's talking in Isaiah 2 about breaking this, turning the swords into plowshares, spears into pruning hooks, and so on in the future. But they obviously, when Isaiah wrote this, knew about iron and, and how it could be used for weapons. Uh, verse 7 is what I'm wanting here, though. Uh, talks about the Philistines, and they please themselves and the children of strangers. Their land also, the land of the Philistines, okay, is full of silver and gold. Neither is there any end of their treasures. Their land is full of horses. Neither is there any end of their chariots. Well, now, Hollywood will tell you that the Philistines were along the coast of present-day uh, Israel. And it says their land, not imported, unless somebody keeps make that, keep making that argument. Their land is full of silver and gold and no end of their treasures. They were quite wealthy. So is it any wonder when Israel came into Jericho or came into the other cities that God had to tell them whether to keep the spoil or not to keep it or whatever? Because it was there. But if the Philistines were in that Middle East, where did they get all this? They had to be in a land that had it. So when you read all this stuff and you, and you can't find any of it over there, then you begin to say, uh, there's no climate change. They didn't mine it all out. They didn't do this. They didn't do that. You're looking at the wrong spot. You know, you have to finally conclude that. I'm looking in the wrong spot. 
Isaiah 40, verse 19, mentions um, the craftsmen of silver and gold. Here's a quote from Nelson's Bible Dictionary. There are no precious stones in the Holy Land. Let's see. Ezekiel sixteen seventeen. Well, this, this is uh, the chapter that's talking about Israel and how she was dressed and so on. Uh, her garments, verse 17, You have also taken your fair jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and made to yourself images of men that did commit whoredom with them. Now, he says, I had given it to you. I think that probably implies that when he gave them the promised land, he gave them a land that had that in it. In other words, he gave it to them. The Philistines, the Hittites, Hivites, Amorites, and, and so on, had that stuff when Israel came into and took the land that God had said would become theirs. So it was given to them. Uh, Ezekiel 22, while we're here. And verse 18. Son of man, speaking to Ezekiel, the house of Israel is to me become dross. All they are brass and tin and iron and lead in the midst of the furnace. They are even the dross of silver. Uh, therefore, thus says the eternal God, because you are all become dross, behold, therefore, I will gather you into the midst of Jerusalem as they gather silver and brass and iron and lead and tin into the midst of the furnace to blow the fire upon it, to melt it. So they weren't just going somewhere and bringing back from far lands these things. I think this indicates very clearly that they were refining it in the promised land. Do you know how prohibitive it is if you find a good gold mine these days, an ounce or two of gold per ton? is a good mine. Imagine bringing it from, let's say, Asia or from Africa, from Johannesburg or whatever, uh, by sailing ship, by the ton of ore, and then refining it in the promised land. You'd have to refine it in the far land and then ship the gold and the silver and the purified iron. Uh, otherwise, you wouldn't have had enough sailing ships to bring that much ore over to the promised land to refine it. So obviously, if they were refining it in the promised land, that's where they had to have gotten it. And he said that in the promised land, you will dig your iron and your brass and so on from the hills in your land not import it. And here he includes uh, precious as well as not-so-precious metals. Uh, one more. Hosea 9. Ouch, I think I'm getting ants up my leg. Hosea 9, verse 6. For lo, they are gone because of destruction. Mitzrayim shall gather them up. Memphis shall bury them. The pleasant places for their silver, nettles shall possess them. Thorns shall be in their tabernacles. So God says that the destruction, and it's talking to Israel here, uh, is going to come upon us, and the places where we get our silver will become grown over with weeds and thorns and so on. So that's your mining areas. All right, let me set those aside. What time is it getting to be? Four or late. Um, 
Maybe I'll go back to Deuteronomy again just for a moment here. Deuteronomy 8 again. Now, he's talked about all these things the promised land will have. We've spent quite a little time on precious metals, uh, the contrast being so great in that here we have so much, and over there they have absolutely none other than one small copper mine. Then he says, when your herds and your flocks multiply, and your silver and your gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up, and you forget the eternal your God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. And then he starts talking uh, about the terrible wilderness they went through and how they'd been fed there, so he might do them good at their latter end. Verse 18, You shall remember the eternal your God, for it is he that gives you power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to you, or to your fathers, as it is this day. Now, think of modern America for a moment. When we made our first permanent settlement here in 1607, the wealth of the land was before us. Just as when they went into the promised land the first time with Joshua. They'd been there, uh, born there probably, but it was land that he gave back. I mean, born in terms of the Garden of Eden, but taken elsewhere. But when they were allowed to go into that promised land, it was full of gold and silver and iron and so on, as we have seen. We had the same opportunity here in this land when we got here. Landed on the wooded shores, the pilgrims, and all the incredible wealth of this land was laid right there before us. And God gave it to us. And we became the wealthiest, the most powerful nation the world has ever known because of all the natural resources that God put here and our energy in exploiting them. Now we have become a sinful nation. We're about to be destroyed again, and all this wealth will be taken away and will be taken captive. But it was here, wasn't it? To be developed, to be used. There was no presence of Israel at all in the Middle East until 1948. Not 1607, 1948. And when they, if that was going back to the Promised Land, got there, there was nothing there for them to exploit and to use. Almost nothing. And they import a majority of everything they use today. They subsist primarily because of foreign aid and loans, and most of it comes from us, the vast majority of it. We were given those blessings here. They were not given them over there. Now, we've run the cycle, and we're about to go into captivity again. But it isn't because God did not give us everything we needed. Now, we didn't really even start importing stuff until more recently, at least and not in great numbers of things or great volume of things. We produced most everything we used right here, didn't we? Our own iron, our own brass, our own copper, our incredible industrial cities developing our own natural resources and then exporting them to other nations. But as we have gone downhill morally and spiritually as a nation, we have become dependent upon other nations, and we'll, we'll get into some of that uh, probably tomorrow if I get that far. But I wanted to take the time here to show that the promised land has a lot of things the Bible talks about, and if the Bible be true, and I believe that it certainly is and can be depended upon, then wherever the promised land is, you've got to have the things we've talked about today, and if it doesn't have them, that isn't the promised land. Can we see that? You have to set your bias aside. You have to set aside what everybody knows or what your history book told you and examine God's Word and see what God says. Then look around and see if what you see 
is what matches God's word. And we can depend on this word. If God says there was gold and silver and iron and brass there in the promised land, then there had to be, and has to be today. We're going to see that the conditions we're talking about here have to exist in the end time, not just then. Therefore, climate change really doesn't matter. Because I think tomorrow we'll get into talking about what would befall the nations of Israel in the latter days. So the latter days are what we have to consider even more perhaps than the former days. Now that's an important thought. When it talks about the blessings of Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph, and of Israel in the Bible, and says what they will have at the end, then what we have in the 20th and 21st century has to fit what the Bible says would be the latter end of the tribes. I'll leave you with that thought for today, and we'll examine it some more.